We've made it to the third chapter of Romans in our study together, if you want to turn there with me. Paul is making his way through the beginning of his letter to the church at Rome, and he's sharing with them the message of the gospel, the details behind the good news of Jesus Christ. It was Paul's desire to go to Rome and preach this message to them personally. But in the meantime, he pens this letter and sends it to them, which is very fortunate for us because, of course, that means that we have it ourselves. The opening chapters deal with fallen man, which is what we've been studying together. The condition of everyone, people who are unsaved, have never come to saving faith in the gospel, as well as people who are not saved yet, those who do believe the gospel at some point in their lives, but prior to their salvation, the things that Paul presents here are true of them as well. Every single one of us here is being described in these chapters, either as a condition before we came to saving faith, or if there's someone here who hasn't come to saving faith yet, it would describe that person today. Paul started off in chapter 1, talking about how fallen mankind, fallen man, is under God's wrath. Man knows the truth, everyone does, but suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. Primarily, the people that he's talking about in chapter 1 are Gentiles, because all that they know are basic truths, God's general revelation, which they ignore and suppress. Now, if people who don't know much at all about God are guilty before him because of how they suppress what they know, then what does that say about people who do know about God and yet suppress what they know, outright disobey what God has told them? Well, that's where Paul took us in chapter 2. He progressed on from the general knowledge to those with specific knowledge, people who know more but still disobey God. What about them? Do they have an advantage over others? No, Paul told us. God will judge all men impartially, but he will judge them based on what they know. It's been pointed out that if he judges them based on different standards, some that know just a little bit, others that know more, then how is that impartial? The impartiality comes from the fact that he will judge them both. No one gets a pass. The one who knows basic right from wrong, don't steal, don't kill, etc., will be judged based on those basic things that all men have in their hearts, the laws that God has put there that convict their conscience. They will be judged based on that, and they will stand condemned. But if someone has God's word, if someone knows for sure that something is wrong, has been told directly that there are certain things that they should do, and that they should not do, then when those people disobey that, they will be judged as well. They don't get a pass. As we moved through chapter 2, we saw in verse 17 that Paul was leading us into a discussion about the Jews, because as Paul was writing, it really was a difference between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles were like those in chapter 1 who had no instruction from God. The Jews, on the other hand, were like those who started off chapter 2, who had been given the law of God, who knew right from wrong, because they had been told what was right and what was wrong. If they sinned, did the same things that the Gentiles did, 
Did they get a pass because they were Jews? No, not at all. You see, that's what the Jews came to believe about themselves, that just because they were Jews, they were God's chosen people, and they got a pass, quote-unquote, when it came to their sin. They looked at the Gentiles, saw them as hopeless, far removed from God, and considered themselves to be saved just by association, association with the things that God had given to them. We looked into chapter 9 a couple of weeks ago, and we'll see it again when we get to that chapter. But in chapter 9, Paul will list out various advantages that the Jews had, and, and, that, uh, and they did have them, though they were things that they had. They were Israelites, adoption as sons, they had the covenants, the giving of the law, temple service, promises, the fathers, and of course, it was through them that the Messiah came into the world. All of those things God had indeed given. But what he didn't give them was a free ride when it came to sin. That's not how it worked. It was never how it worked. At the end of the chapter, Paul focused on two things, the law and circumcision. When it came to the law, that was Israel's instruction guide. It was their advantage from God's word. He told them what it meant to be righteous before him, told them what it would take. In effect, told them what was right and what was wrong. But the law was something that they could never keep, and it was never intended to bring them salvation. It was a standard by which they could see their need for salvation. That's what they got wrong. They turned it into a works-based system, and it was never meant to be that. Circumcision was an outward sign. It was a physical sign for the male members of Israel to show that they were set apart as God's people. But it was also meant to be an outward sign of a changed heart. In the final verses of chapter 2, we saw what Paul said a true Jew really was. He said in verse 28, For he is not a Jew who was one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who was one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Being a true Jew was not merely a matter of your heritage, being a descendant of Abraham, being a being part of that chosen nation. But there must also have been a change of heart. It was a matter of the heart. And we looked at several Old Testament passages that showed that the condition of the heart was always in view for what God considered acceptable. There was always a circumcised heart that had to be present in order for someone to truly belong to God. And so, with these verses here, that's what Paul is reiterating. Not stating anything groundbreakingly new, but merely saying that for a Jew to truly be a Jew, he must also have his heart right before God. Keep in mind, this is all still within the discussion on fallen man. The Jew that Paul is talking about here is one who it's being revealed isn't saved. By his deeds, his actions, he's in sin. He is proving himself not to be practicing the law. He is proving himself not to have a heart that is circumcised before God. And now, as we come to chapter 3, we're going to see him continue 
with this same line of thinking. The same train of thought applies here as well. What he's going to do to start off the chapter is ask a series of questions, going back to that dialogue type of argument that he started to employ back at the beginning of chapter 2. He's going to ask and answer a series of questions that are designed to take the inevitable, inevitable criticisms that are going to arise from his previous statements about the Jews and give answers to them before they even have a chance to be asked. Some say that Paul is addressing things that may have really been asked already in Rome. Maybe there was a group of Jews that had some issues with him already uh, that he had to address. And when we get down to verse 8, we'll see that there is some of that going on. But for the most part, I think Paul is simply dealing with the logical arguments that will arise from his previous comments. And employing this dialogue tactic gives him a mechanism to further his discussion on the gospel. So look with me at how he starts off verse 1 of chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? So you see right here from the beginning, this is a continuation from his previous comments at the end of chapter 2. He just said, he is a Jew who is one outwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. Paul, you just attacked our identity. Those things that we hold near and dear, national physical heritage, our sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. And now what? Do those things not matter? Is there no advantage to being a Jew? No advantage to being a descendant of Abraham? That's really the question here. Is that what this means, what his previous comments in chapter 2 would indicate? That's actually what many say today. When they take Paul's words at the end of chapter 2 and try to say that now the church is the new Israel, that the Jews of today are really Christians because it's all a matter of the heart, and so anyone who has their heart right before God is now a Jew. That's what covenant theology would say about those verses in chapter 2, in verses 28 and 29. But part of the problem with that view, not the only problem, but part of it, is what he goes on to say here in the beginning of chapter 3. It's really the same question. Are you saying there is no advantage to being a physical Jew? No advantage to having that physical identity? And he gives his first answer then in verse 2. What is the advantage of those things? Verse 2, great in every respect. As Paul states here, of course there is still advantage in being a physical Jew and having circumcision. Great in every respect. That advantage is not in dispute. The Jew has priority. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 16, the theme of the entire letter is found there. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. There is distinction here between Jew and Gentile, Jew first, and also to the Greek. Down in chapter 2, he talks about judgment for both Jew and Gentile. And in verses 9 and 10, he uses the same phrase in judgment. Whether a person is found to be righteous or condemned, it's the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is distinction. It shows him the impartiality of God. When someone believes the gospel, whether Jew or Greek, they will be saved. When someone is judged, Jew or Greek, God will impartially judge, but the distinction between them is still there. 
Paul didn't say, well, the believer is the Jew and the unbeliever is the Gentile. So we should take his comments toward the Jews as referring to believers and his comments about Gentiles as referring to unbelievers. No, it's not presented that way. It's presented presented as distinction with priority to the Jews. Are they still God's people? Yes. They are still God's chosen nation. They are still the recipients of the blessings of God. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't others now who have uh, also received blessings. The church has also received great blessings. But that doesn't cancel out the blessings given to Israel. Now, as he goes on in the verse, he gives an example, one that he's really already been talking about. He says, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. These would be the commands of God, the word of God. What he, what was he just talking about back in chapter 2? The law. The Jews having the knowledge of the law. Big, big advantage, wasn't it? God had given his commands, his law, to no other nation. I referred to it earlier, but, but turn back to Romans chapter 9 with me. I don't think this will be a spoiler. It will be a while before we get to chapter 9. But look at verse 3 in Romans 9, where he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now just a note here, who's he talking about here? Is he talking about Gentiles who have been saved? No. He's talking about his kinsmen the nation to which he belonged, in the flesh, he says. Okay, who's that? Verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. You see here, Paul still is making that distinction that there is something to the physical nation of Israel. Outlines their advantages. And part of those advantages, the same thing he brings up back in chapter 3. Covenants, giving of the law, promises. All things that we could say are wrapped up in the oracles of God. The very word or utterances of God. Back in chapter 3, he says, first of all, and we might expect him to continue with a list of things, but he won't do that until we get to chapter 9. That's where we see the rest of any lists. But his first of all reference here really is just the priority that he wants to bring out. Just the one example of how the Jews were given the word of God, promises, covenants, law, all of that. And not just given it, he says they were entrusted with it. This is the word that means to be faithful, or even believe. He's going to use this same word four times in verses 2 and 3, talking about the faithfulness of Jews, and their faithfulness and God's faithfulness. We'll see that in a few minutes when we get to verse 3. But here, he's talking about how the Jews were given God's word and entrusted with it. It was a requirement for them to not only have it, but to believe it as well. Now look at how they received God's word. Turn with me back to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
God is giving Israel instructions through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And the chapter starts off in verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. What does he tell them? Listen to the statutes and the judgments, so that you may, what? Live and go in and take possession of the land. It's what we talked about in the last chapter. It's not enough to just have the law, God's word. They were supposed to do it, to follow it, believe in what God had given to them. Look at verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Once again, they were to keep them. Very important. But what else is important here? You don't add anything or take away anything. God has given you his word. You are not free to alter it. It's entrusted to you as is. What did we see in our last lesson? We looked into Matthew chapter 15 when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees. They had created their traditions that that superseded even opposed the very law that they professed to uphold better than anyone else. They failed in this command that Moses is giving them here. It was the nation of Israel. In fact, look down a few verses to verse 8 of Deuteronomy 4. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? We're talking about the advantages that Israel had. Here it is. What other nation is there had this law that God had given Israel? No other nation had. You want to talk about whether the Jews had any advantage? Here it is. They were given God's word, the law, the promises and covenants. That's a tremendous advantage. But again, they were given it entrusted with it to keep it as is, not to add to it, not to take away from it. Turn to one more passage with me. Psalm 147. We see this same thing here as well. This is a psalm praying for the restoration of Jerusalem. And in Psalm 147, look down with me at verse 19. It says, He declares his words to Jacob his statutes, and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. So once again, what do we have? The word of God coming to Jacob, to Israel. Verse 20, no other nation had that. He dealt with no other nation that way. They did not know the ordinances of God. So what God gave to them was an advantage indeed. It was entrusted to them and them alone. And it was expected to be obeyed, to be followed. They were expected to deal with God's word faithfully. And therein lies the rub, as they say. And what Paul has been talking about for the last several verses, they did not keep the law. We saw in verse 13 of chapter 2, 
for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. They were expected to do, keep the law, not just hear it. He then said again in verse 23, you who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, you dishonor God. They had the law. They boasted in it. They could guide the blind with it, knew what it said, but they broke it. They were not faithful with it. And that's really where Paul is going, uh, where he's going to go next with this line of questions. Was there any advantage to being a Jew? Yes, of course. They had been given the law, the very word of God. But as we've already seen, they didn't keep that. So that brings up the next obvious question that Paul is going to take us through in verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? We already talked about how entrusted in verse 2 is a word for belief or faithfulness. But the Jews were not faithful with the word of God. So here's the next question. What does that unfaithfulness mean? If some did not believe, some commentators think Paul is being very gracious here, using the word some instead of all, or at least most. But the reality is some Jews did believe, so some didn't believe. And the number on either side isn't really what's important. What's important is if there is a representative number of Jews who failed to believe, does that invalidate the faithfulness of God? It kind of reminds me of Abraham when the Lord told him he was going to destroy Sodom. What did Abraham ask God? He says, if you find 50 righteous men, will you spare the city? How about 45? No, wait, 40. 30? 20? How about 10? Maybe that's what Paul had in mind with this anticipated argument here. Even if just a few, just some were unfaithful, does that nullify the faithfulness of God. The question that's being asked here is, will God turn his back on what he promised to Israel if some in Israel turned their back on him? Will he be unfaithful to them because of their unfaithfulness towards him? In human terms, it's a valid question. We have agreements with one another. We make contracts with others. And if one party breaks their part of the deal of that contract, then the other party can break their part of the deal as well, can't they? I mean, that's part of what we understand when we enter into an agreement, right? So that's the same question that Paul presents here. If the Jews were unfaithful, even just some of them, to their part of the agreement with God, will God be unfaithful? Well, before we see Paul's answer in verse 4, we need to realize what we're talking about, what we're saying God, what we're saying when that God will be, un, be faithful or unfaithful to. Remember a few weeks back when we were talking about the law, we looked back in Exodus 19, when God had Moses bring the law. What we know is the Mosaic Law or Mosaic Covenant before the nation of Israel. And in that chapter, part of what God told them was in verses 5 and 6. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. What did we see there? There was an if-then clause in what God told them. If you do this, then I will do this. If you keep my commandments, then you will be my people. This is why we call the Mosaic Covenant a conditional covenant. Because it was required for Israel to keep it to receive the blessings from God. If they failed to keep it, then there would be no blessings. Now, we've seen this to be the case. Because as we went through chapter 2, we talked at length about how Israel could not keep it. No one could perfectly keep the law. So the blessings of God, salvation for his chosen people, were not predicated on the Mosaic law. Because it was a righteous standard that no one was righteous and able to keep. So when this question is asked in verse 3, if the, if the Jews are unfaithful, will that mean that God is unfaithful? That's really not a question that pertains to the Mosaic Law, at least not entirely. Because for God to not bless them based on their disobedience, it, it would not be unfaithful or a breaking of his promise on God's part to not give them those blessings. However, that was not the only covenant that God made with Israel. Prior to the law, God had promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. And that covenant was unconditional. That covenant was a promise by God that he would fulfill with the Jews, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That covenant was reiterated to all three of them. And then after the Mosaic Law was given, promises were made to David as well. The Davidic covenant, promise of a ruler, the Messiah, that would come through the line of David and rule over a kingdom that would endure forever. And that one, like the covenant with Abraham, was unconditional as well. There was no requirement on Israel's part for God to bring these to fruition. They relied solely on the faithfulness of God to bring them about. So, when we see this question asked here, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? We have to understand that the conditional aspect of the Mosaic Covenant is not the only thing at stake with the answer to this question. There are other promises, unconditional promises given, that are very important to keep in mind here. And so, in verse 4, we have Paul's answer to this question. May it never be. Meganoito, God forbid, absolutely not. This is about as strong of a denial of something that Paul could muster. It's a very emphatic no. And the King James Version uses the phrase God forbid, uh, God forbid a phrase um, to translate this word, even though the word for God doesn't even appear here. But it gets the point across that there is absolutely no way that this could be true. Paul will use this phrase nine more times before we're done with the book of Romans. So you get the idea. God will absolutely not be found to be unfaithful, even if some of the Jews did not believe. Jews being unfaithful to God, not following after his word, not being obedient to their promise to him, will not nullify God's faithfulness to them in any way, shape, or form. 
this is very important for us to understand. And the reason that I want uh, that I, that I went over the conditional unconditional thing before, because when people take a view that the church is the new Israel, and that Gentiles are now the new Jews, or anyone that is saved becomes a Jew, and the promises given to Israel are now given to someone else, and and are not now meant for a physical nation of Israel. They are answering this question in a different way than the than way Paul does it. Why? Because for God to take his promises that he had given to the nation of Israel and give them instead to someone else because of the unbelief of the Jews, that's exactly what Paul is arguing against here. That would mean that God, who had promised these things to Israel, was not faithful to them. It means that he had taken promises to them and changed his mind or decided to alter them in some way, which would mean that he went back on the promises that he made with them. Look with me over at chapter 11 of Romans. This ties in with what we're talking about here. Actually, chapters 9 through 11 tie in with what we're talking about here, but we'll just look at a couple of verses in chapter 11. Down in verse 28 of this chapter, as Paul is talking about the future of Israel, the physical nation of Israel, real people of that physical line of Abraham. So in the first part of verse 28, he's talking about their unbelief in the gospel as a partial hardening has come upon them today when he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But then he goes on to clarify, because there is still a future plan for them, he says, but from the standpoint of God's choice or election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So they are still important to God. And then verse 29, we see why. It says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God chose them, elected them, he called them, they are his people. He gave them all the promises and trusted them with his word. And all that he had given to them, could he just take it away? Give it to someone else? No. Why? Because it's all irrevocable. It will not be taken back. It will not be given to someone else. God is and will always be faithful to his promises to the nation Israel. In fact, look up at the first verse of chapter 11. See how he started off this entire chapter. I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And there's our phrase again. Absolutely not. God forbid. Meganoito. Starts off with that same phrase, that same emphatic denial that Israel could ever have been rejected by God. So back in chapter 3, we'll get to chapter 11, not soon enough for me, but we'll get there eventually. But what do we have here? God will absolutely not be unfaithful to his promises to Israel. Paul continues on in verse 4, he says, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. So here's the contrast between God and the Jews really between God and mankind. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. God will be found true. Remember the some aspect we talked about in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Well, here, we're not talking about some anymore. Now Paul says, every man be found a liar. He says that what others do, do not influence God. God will be true regardless. 
We fail to understand that at times. People take that for granted. The Jews took that for granted, certainly. God is the standard. What he has said is the absolute truth. The Jews came up with their own traditions, their own ideas. How did that influence or affect what God said? How did that change the commands of God? It didn't. It didn't change them at all. We would do well to remember that as well. We look around us today. There are a lot of things going on that don't fit with God's word, do they? Society has changed since Paul's day. Actually, with the Roman and Greek cultures, it's probably pretty close. But there are certain things going on today that have changed for us even from 50 years ago. We have open displays of sins going on, celebrating a whole month of pride for sinful activity, just for example. And there are some who would want to say, maybe we shouldn't worry too much about that. Society has changed. Maybe the, sh- maybe the church should change with it. But you know what? God's word hasn't changed. God and his word have remained true. But what if everyone else disagrees? What if everybody else thinks differently? What if we took a poll of every single person on earth and everyone agreed that something from God's word should be changed? That means then that everybody else is wrong. God is the one, is the only one with an opinion that matters. Everyone else might be unfaithful. Everyone else might prove to be a liar. Fine, so be it. But God will never change. What is right and wrong will never change. That should be a great comfort for us. Because as Paul is talking about here, that means that God's promises will never change. Some Jews disobeyed. Will he break his promises to them? No. What if all the Jews disobeyed? Nope. Still no. Because God is true. But there is also another aspect of that that is relevant here. Look at the quote from Psalm 51 that Paul has here. It says, As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That last phrase, prevail when you are judged, is really prevail in your judging. If God is true when it comes to his promises, then he is true when it comes to all of his promises. And that includes in his promises of coming judgment. This quote from Psalm 51.4 is a quote of David. After he had been confronted by Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba, he recognizes his own guilt before God. He says in the first part of that verse, back in Psalm 51, Again, you, you only, I have, against you, you only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and prevail or are blameless in your judging. What's David saying? He recognized that the judgment of God will rightfully fall upon him for his sin, that even in his judgment, God is blameless. People have no problem, usually, with talking about how good God is. When it comes to his love and his blessings, God's blessings rightfully fall on everyone. But what about when we talk about his judgment? Eh, then not so much. But it's true. Turn with me back to the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah, the ninth chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 
is writing during the time of judgment upon the nation. Both the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities had already taken place at this point, which was, of course, judgment upon the nation by God. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see both of these things that we've been talking about, God's faithfulness in not only his blessings upon his people, but also in judgment. Look at Nehemiah 9, verse 16. Here was the condition of Israel during that time. It says, But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. So here we have what Paul was talking about in verses 3 and 4. Israel disobeyed way back during that time, both the northern and southern kingdoms. Yet God did not forsake them. He did not forget his promises to them. Now, does that mean that nothing happened to them? Of course not. Look down a ways. We have several more verses of Israel's deeds during this time. But look down at verse 31. And here we again have that he did not forsake them. Verse 31, Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now in verse 2, here was the judgment. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem, seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. The judgment from the Assyrian captivity until now, even after the Babylonian captivity he's talking about here, those captivities were judgments upon Israel. But even in judgment, look at what he says in verse 33. However, you are just... You are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. You see here, God has dealt with them faithfully, even when they acted wickedly. Remember, just like with David, David sinned. He acknowledged that God acted faithfully in judging him for that sin. Here, Israel sinned. Nehemiah acknowledges that it is just for God to judge them based on their wickedness against him. Is he compassionate to them? Deal with them by not forsaking them as his people? Yes, he keeps his word in that. Does he judge them according to his word? Yes, he also keeps his word in that. So where Paul is going with this is if God is true, and he is, if he fulfills his promises, which he does, then you have to conclude that even when he judges, in his judgment, he shows his own righteousness. He judges based on his own standard, because he faithfully keeps his word at all times in every situation. Even the judgment of God against sinners displays his righteousness. Now, that is the next objection that Paul anticipates as well, as we come to verse 5 in Romans chapter 3. 
What's the next question he asks? But if our unrighteous, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. We've already answered some of this, but the objection here goes something like this. So God is righteous, but I am not. I sin. I acknowledge that. Even the Jew would acknowledge that they sin. So my sin reveals the righteousness of God, right? And that would, of course, be a good thing, to display the righteousness of God. So wouldn't it really be unrighteous of God to punish me for doing something that displays his righteousness in the first place? Now, it sounds kind of convoluted, which is why Paul adds that at the end of the verse, I am speaking in human terms. This is the mixed-up, crazy kind of logic that man comes up with in these situations. And it's actually not that far off, because people do come up with these kinds of arguments. For example, when I was in high school, I dated an unbeliever. That was something that was wrong of me. I know that. I knew it then. In my mind, however, I excused it because I saw it as an opportunity to witness to her. Not that I did that a lot, but I did do it. And therefore, in my mind, surely my sin would be excused in that. Surely it was okay in that case. There are other people who do the same things, like excuse affairs that they have, excuse taking of money if they, ha if they give some of it to the church. And often, the excuse will be just like Paul says here. If my sin shows the righteousness of God, then it's a good thing, right? Really, it's the same type of argument that Paul will deal with when we get to chapter 6. Look over at chapter 6 for a second. At the end of chapter 5, he talks about where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's in verse 20 of chapter 5. So with the presence of sin, we have grace increasing. More grace is a good thing, right? So that leads to another rhetorical question that he asks in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Really, this is that same sort of logic. More sin means more grace. So should we just keep sinning? Verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Once again, there's our phrase. God forbid, absolutely not. Meganoito. And back in chapter 3, he has the same answer once again, down in verse 6. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? Would God be wrong to judge someone for sinning if that sin displayed his righteousness? Absolutely not. May it never be. Because if it did, how would he judge the world? All sin, everyone's sin, shows the righteousness of God. How is that? Because sin is a failure to measure up to God's righteousness. It's a missing of the mark. The mark is righteousness. Whenever a person fails to hit that, it's sin. Every deed that a person does, Jew or Gentile, is measured up against the righteousness of God. We talked a few weeks back about the measuring stick, holding something up to, to a measuring stick, to a yardstick. Is it a yard or, or not a yard? If it doesn't measure up exactly, if it's even one thirty-second of an inch off, it doesn't measure up. It's not a yard. 
That's sin. A deed doesn't measure up to God's righteousness, which is the measuring stick. Then it's not righteous. It misses that mark. So the entire world can make the same claim that the Jews are making here, or that Paul is hypothetically presenting. My sin shows the righteousness of God, so how can that be a bad thing? Even the Jews would agree. That's ridiculous. The Jews would be the first to say, the world needs to be judged. But the issue is, and the point that Paul is making here, is that if God is righteous in judging the world, then by the same token, he is righteous in judging everyone in the world. There's that partiality coming into play again. God must act consistently with his character. If he's going to judge anyone, he's going to judge everyone. No one gets a pass. But even in his judgment, there will be consistency with who he is. I mentioned earlier the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham petitions God, if we find some in the city who are righteous, you'll spare the city, right? Well, in verse 25 of Genesis 18, we see what he bases his logic on in petitioning God for that. It says in verse 24, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. Abraham's point is that he knows the character of God. God will not judge the wicked and the righteous the same. If there are righteous people in the city, they will not be judged the same as the wicked in the city. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And God doesn't argue this. Abraham isn't challenging God. It shows that he knows the character of God. God will judge all men. The wicked will be condemned. The righteous will be blessed. And so, when it comes to the wicked, we must understand, wicked means they don't measure up to the standard of God. And so, here in verse 6, that's what we're seeing. The wicked are judged, all, Jew or Gentile. The display of God's righteousness is not at issue. God's faithfulness in his word, his truthful character, is what's at issue. So, we come to verse 7, and this is really a reiteration of verse 5. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? He makes it more personal here, makes it more relevant on a personal level. But it's really the same argument. If I lie, and that lie shows the truth of God, and showing his truth brings glory to him, why would I be judged? So it's really the same question as before, just with a specific example. And as we come to verse 8, we see that there may have been some other motive for Paul to use this example as he indicates that there was some sort of opposition to some of the things that he had been teaching. If you look at verse 8, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. You see here, some were slandering Paul. 
we don't get any details here. Maybe, maybe the Romans were familiar with this. Maybe this is why Paul wrote a thorough gospel explanation instead of just waiting until he was there with them. We can't really say for sure. There's not really enough here to go on. But it appears that some were reporting that this was Paul's point, what he was trying to say. There are people today who say the same things when we talk about grace, God's grace. When I was young, very young and very foolish, I actually told a friend of mine this. I told him, the cool thing about being saved is that everything you do is forgiven, so you can do whatever you want. You know, we already skipped ahead and saw Paul deal with that in chapter 6 of Romans. Can't we just continue in sin because of grace? May it never be. But that's the problem that a lot of people have with the teaching of grace. Because they think that's what it teaches. Sin all you want. God is glorified. It's all forgiven anyway. No, 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 no. That's not what Paul was teaching. That's not how it works. And we'll see that in detail when we get to chapter 6. A person who is saved is born again. Goes through a transformed life. God changes us from the inside out so that the things that we want are no longer the things that we wanted to do before. I'm not saying it's always easy or that we don't struggle with sin at times. But a saved life has a transformed heart that desires to please the Lord in whatever it does. What is Paul's response to this? It's really the only summation that there can be. He says their condemnation is just. Those that take the word of God and use it to justify their sin, use it to say, look at me, I'm forgiven. I'm a Jew, so I can do what I want. I'm a Lutheran or a Catholic. I go to a Bible-believing church, so I can do whatever it is that I want to do. It doesn't work that way for anyone. Yes, Paul is specifically talking about Jews here. But the principle really applies to anyone in this same category. There are people who put all their faith in the fact that they attend church every week, that they know some things about the Bible, that they grew up in a certain church. They learned all the Awana or Truth truth Trackers or whatever kids program they grew up with, all the Bible verses that they were supposed to learn. And maybe they can still recite those Bible verses. Great. But that doesn't save them. That doesn't give them a pass. Paul is talking here about those who are unsaved, who stand condemned, even though they have God's word, even though they belong to a group that is recognized as God's people, but they stand condemned because in their heart, they never believed. Their condemnation is just. God keeps his word. If you believe in him for salvation, put your faith and trust in the truth of the gospel, you will stand before him as righteous. He will credit his righteousness to your account. If you do not, you will stand condemned before him on the day of judgment. Those are the only options. God is a God of his word. We can be absolutely certain that he will do all that he says he will do.